America. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's great to be with you on a rainy Saturday here in New York City. I think it's going to rain for the next few days. It might rain for weeks. Noah's Ark. Governor Hochul bans gas-burning stoves. Gas-burning stoves. I love that. Telling people we have to worry about climate change. We had too much snow this year. Well, wait a minute. We didn't have any snow this year. I don't know where she got that. Too much snow. Anyway, I want to talk about some other things. But gas-burning stove is just really stupid. I think we New York State now would be the only state in the union that burns that bans gas-burning stove. I don't. I would expect uh, California to do something goofy like that because they do everything goofy. But maybe not. The New York Post reported. We're the only ones. Isn't that fun? Anyway, you should join us during the week on television. Fox Business Network. Name of the show is Kudlow. Runs 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. And if you can't make it at 4, for heaven's sakes, DVRs, all you have to do is text your favorite nine-year-old, and she will teach you how to DVR the show, and you won't miss a thing. And uh, here on the radio, why, you can get us on the Internet, live streaming. It's LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. You can get us all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. We have a good following in the Milky Way, I'm told. Anyway, I want to talk about a bunch of things. The first one up, for politics and the economy, for politics and the economy. I think the biggest story this past week was um, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, okay? House Speaker, Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, uh, who I acknowledge is a good friend of mine. I think he's doing a terrific job. He came on our show. He was our lead guest um, Wednesday. And the day before, Tuesday, he and his Republican colleagues – uh, passed a debt ceiling bill that would raise the federal borrowing allowance by $1.5 trillion for a year, for one year. And in return for that, got very significant spending cuts, federal budget spending cuts, of nearly $5 trillion dollars $5 trillion in spending cuts uh, over the uh, score table's 10-year window. $5 trillion. A good number. A very good number. And it starts right away off of the, 20, the FY 2022 baseline. They'd say $500 billion the first two years, 23 and 24. A good deal. Inside that deal, by the way, they would impose work requirements. 
workfare on uh, Medicaid, food stamps, and welfare. Go back to the Bill Clinton-Newt Gingrich deal 25 years ago, which was so successful, in which the Bidens repealed. They didn't want, you know, no work requirements in return for social benefits. You know, the dignity of work has suffered. Uh, people are out of the labor force. I mean, able-bodied people, able-bodied people without kids between the ages of 19 and 55, if you're down on your luck, you'd still get some welfare. But you have to go out and look for a job. There's time limits to the benefits either a job or community service or uh, some education training. It's exactly what Bill Clinton Democrats did with the Newt Gingrich Republicans in the mid-90s. It worked so well. And also in the House bill, uh, besides going back to the 2022 baseline, uh, they instituted H.R. 1, which is the energy bill, uh, the Lower Energy Cost Act, which essentially would uh, turn the oil and gas fossil fuel spigots back on with excellent permitting provisions, exactly what the doctor ordered, exactly what the doctor ordered. They would also stop $500 billion worth of student loan cancellations. Take out a loan, you should pay your loan. Again, by the way, there were no no income uh, or workfare pro- provisions there. Anyway, it's very reasonable. You have, you know, moderate middle of the road groups like the um, uh, committee to whatever it's called, Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, Maya McGinnis's group. She came on the TV show. They've endorsed it. A lot of people have endorsed it. And um, a lot of Democrats now are urging Joe Biden to negotiate with McCarthy, and he won't. And this is the story. For months, for months, Biden said, I can't negotiate until you show me a budget. Well, they came up with a debt ceiling increase budget. Now, this is not the overall budget. There'll be a budget resolution for FY24 through 34. That's different. This is a debt ceiling. It's an interim budget. And they put it up. It's the only debt ceiling increase. Nobody else has one. Chuck Schumer says debt on arrival. The big dopey dope that he is, debt on arrival. What does that mean? What do you have? What is your plan, Mr. Schumer? The answer is nothing, nada. What's Biden's plan? Nothing, nada. The only game in the House is Kevin McCarthy. Now, those, you know, Biden and McCarthy met, let's see, 87 days ago. Today is day 87. They had their first meeting way back last winter, have not met since then. Biden refuses. McCarthy has said a million times, that he is open to meeting, he is open to compromise, he is open to negotiation. Very attractive guy, Kevin McCarthy, okay? Very attractive guy. You know, he's not a scaremonger. He's an optimistic guy. He's a pro-growth guy. 
He came up with a good plan and passed the House by a couple of votes. In fact, I think one of the big surprises here, and the reason Biden is in political trouble now, is the White House and the you know Democrats, maybe in the Senate, never took the McCarthy Republicans seriously. But they've passed already two major bills. One of them is the H.R. 1 energy bill that I mentioned a moment ago, which would reopen the uh, fossil fuel spigots and provide new permitting. By the way, it helps renewables because it allow people to drill for minerals, for the batteries, for the electric cars, so we don't have to bail out China, which is what the uh, Biden bill does. It's bail out of China. But um, they passed the H.R. 1, and now they've passed this new budget resolution. And uh, McCarthy has shown he can govern. McCarthy has shown he is an effective speaker. He builds coalitions inside the Republican conference. You know, you've got people that want it tougher and people that want an easier budget. People that wanted this, didn't want that. Anyway, he crafted it. He cobbled together. And it's very impressive. And now Biden's in trouble. McCarthy basically turned the tables on Biden. And here's day 87. And Biden keeps saying, no, 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 I want a a clean bill, just a debt ceiling increase. You can't have that. And in the past, you've never had that. You can go down through history, go to a decade. We're going to have uh, former Senator Phil Graham at the half hour is going to talk about this stuff. He was one of the original guys, Graham Rudman Hollings, two deals made in the late uh, the Reagan 80s that increased the debt ceiling but also curbed excessive federal spending. Eight times in the last 38 years we've had deals. Two Graham Rudmans under Reagan – one deal under Papa Bush, three Clinton-Gingrich deals in the 90s, and two deals during the Obama years. Incidentally, Joe Biden, Vice President Joe Biden, negotiated a debt ceiling deal with Republican Speaker John Boehner in 2011, which raised the debt ceiling in return for significant budget cuts. So there's nothing new about this. Biden knows that. He's as phony as a $3 bill. And he's losing ground politically because everybody's saying you got to negotiate. The deadline for raising the debt is who knows. The X date is could be, you know, June, late June, July. We're not sure yet. We don't know about revenues. We won't know for another month or two. But here's McCarthy in late April putting his uh, own budget deal on the table. He is doing what Biden requested. And Biden's saying, no, I won't meet with you. No second meeting, no second date, you know, no going out for coffee or a quick sandwich or maybe a drive-in movie, nothing. And McCarthy's got the upper hand in this political battle. Trust me, he's got the upper hand. Because people know, people know that McCarthy put up, did the right thing, was constructive. Now Biden is in the dark. They don't know what to do. And you know what's interesting, too? I want to make this final point. Um, There is not a single budget cut that I've ever heard Biden mention. He won't cut the budget. Not nothing. It's like, oh, we needed all this $7 trillion in spending. 
The guy has increased spending and debt by roughly, I don't know, five and a half to six trillion dollars in his first two years. Never seen anything like this spending. Blaming COVID and the economy and this and that. That's why the inflation rate jumped up from one and a half percent to nearly 10 percent. Now it's settling in around five or six percent, which is way too high. It's eroding worker earnings. Middle class living standards are getting clobbered. Energy prices, food prices, things we need day to day, groceries, kitchen table stuff. It's all outrageous what's happened. Fifteen percent increase in the consumer price index since uh, Joe Biden took over. Fifteen percent. All right, that's just a little over two years. It's the largest gain in, you know, four decades. So much of it comes from this excessive spending. And the Federal Reserve, not, I don't want to leave the Federal Reserve out. The Federal Reserve printed way too much money because they were in denial about inflation too. But you spend, the money is deposited, that increases the money supply, and money's deposited in your accounts direct. A lot of this stuff direct, that bloats the nation's money supply. You have too much money chasing too few goods. Too few goods, well, Senator Graham's going to talk to it. With all the massive regulations and all the attacks, the tax attacks on business, war on business, we're not producing enough goods, but we are spending too much. So you've got too much money chasing too few goods. The inflation rate remains high. It's very sticky going to be very difficult. Fed's going to have to keep raising interest rates. Despite the fact that another bank, another bank, this First Republic Bank, which is here in New York and in uh, Santa Clara, California, it's basically a Silicon Valley bank. That thing's going under. That thing's going under. They're trying to make a deal. They're going to have to bail it out this weekend then try to make a deal to sell the damn thing. But anyway... Joe Biden won't cut a nickel out of the budget. Nothing. Nada. I mean, it's incredible. And nobody believes that you couldn't cut. No one believes that. No one believes that that wasn't the source of the inflation. No one believes that what he did back in March of 2021, when he kept saying, I inherited a terrible economy and I need a $1.9 trillion spending package, blah, blah, blah. The economy was growing at 6.5%. The Trump economy was growing at 6.5% with less than 1.5% inflation, okay? that Trump left him on a silver platter, a superb economy, and Biden mangled it with his big government socialism, his overspending and overregulating and overtaxing, and his rhetoric against business, his rhetoric against fossil fuels. Anyway... Kevin McCarthy, the new speaker, has essentially called Biden out by producing a very sensible budget that raises the debt ceiling. And Biden may be in denial, but this story, he's going to have to change his stripes. And he's going to look like a doddering old fool when he does. A doddering old fool. So all I can say is save America cut the budget, accept Kevin McCarthy, and retire Joe Biden. Just retire him and his vice president, Kamala Harris. Retire both of them. Think about that. What a wonderful thought. I'm Kudlow. We'll take a quick break. Be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So I just want to pitch in one other 
subject that came up uh, this past week. You know, um, the Kevin McCarthy uh, budget, debt ceiling budget, wants to take out the IRS funding, $80 billion in funding. Uh, I don't know how many, 87,000 new agents, if I have that right. $80 billion in funding, 87,000 new agents, yeah. But did you know, and I found this out, uh, came across this, talked about it last night's show. Even before, the IRS is like a little army, an armed army. And they advertise people to hire people who are willing to use force up to and including the use of, quote, deadly force. This is the IRS. I I thought they're a bunch of nerds, accountants, spreadsheets, wrong, armed. Listen to this. Even before this funding bill, the IRS Criminal Investigation Division has 4,600 guns. 3,282 pistols, 621 shotguns, 539 rifles, 15 fully automatic firearms, four revolvers. Now, and listen to this, 3.1 million rounds of pistol and revolver ammunition, 1.5 million rifle rounds, and 367,000 shotgun rounds. Really? <laughs> the IRS like an army. And you know what? They've used it down through the years to intimidate people. To intimidate people. They have a history of conducting armed raids on innocent Americans. Intimidation. They're still doing it. I mean, it's like the it's like the untouchables. Those guys Kevin Costner and Andy Garcia, Sean Connery is a fabulous movie. Those were the Treasury agents. But that was the Al Capone era. This is different. I mean, we have a DEA. We have an FBI. We don't need that armed IRS. You know, it's like you're a small business. And you have a dispute over your 1099. And, and three IRS agents come to your door packing, packing with, uh, with arms to intimidate you. I don't think people knew this. I didn't know this. This is incredible. And by the way, they do a terrible job. I mean, they've actually done studies of how bad they are. You know, they most of the firing, most of the shots they fired have been unintentional. Not intentional. I mean, really? 4,600 guns? 3,282 pistols? This is the IRS? bunch of accounting nerds i'll tell you what save america disarm the irs save america disarm the irs bad enough we have all these new agents coming i'm kudlow we'll have senator phil graham after the break from wall street to the white house this is the larry kudlow show welcome back folks i'm larry kudlow this is the larry kudlow show and we welcome back Senator Phil Graham, former Senator Phil Graham from Texas, great state of Texas. He's now an AEI visiting scholar, American Enterprise Institute. Recently, the author of The Myth of American Inequality, How Government Biases Policy Debate. 
I, th- I think we woke him up here on a Saturday morning. I'm not sure. Rumor is, but we got him. Bill Graham. Well, welcome. I am awake. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. <laughs> that's wonderful. An awake Phil Graham is a great resource for America. How's that? Anyway. Thank you, Larry. I want to talk about your op-ed piece. Uh, it's about a week old. No, it's less than a week old. Biden is transformational and not in a good way. And... uh they, you know what? The stuff they're doing, the regulatory stuff, I mean, the spending is bad. And Ke- I think Kevin McCarthy's got him in a hole now, Senator Graham. I yeah, I do too. You know, McCarthy delivered a budget to raise the debt ceiling, a very good budget. Uh, but the other stuff that's going on here, like the EPA, which I talked a lot about on the TV show this week, um, the EPA basically wants to end the internal combustion engine, stop gas-powered cars in favor of electric vehicles. So, so they want to take over the whole car industry. And then secondly, they want to end the entire fossil fuel industry. That's, you know, those are the goals here. I mean, in like 10 years. Now, that is transformational, but not in a good way, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think, Larry, the point of the article is that across the board, from um, the control of the currency, who is forcing banks to implement ESG uh, uh, conditions, to uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is imposing the same uh, uh, rules, environmental uh restrictions on private business uh, to the new announce this week after the article, the changes in power plant regulation Mm. that in essence will choke off oil and gas uh, over the next 20 years. Uh, Everybody laughed when uh, there was talk in the Biden administration about transforming America. But these regulations, unless American business can find a unified voice uh, or unless a divided Congress can use riders to restrict on appropriations to restrict uh, the regulatory power of the, the Biden administration, or unless the courts bring us salvation, uh, America is going to be a different country at the end of one Biden term. It's a very frightening prospect. Senator, what's the, t- tell me about riders on appropriations. Well, basically, uh, a rider would say, for example, um, the Biden administration has entered into an agreement with 187 nations to impose a corporate minimum tax And if we don't adopt it uh, uh, in the U.S., that is, if Congress does not adopt their minimum uh, international income tax, then these countries will impose it on American companies on their U.S. earnings. Um, What a rider would say is that no funds uh, appropriated in this act would go to the OECD, Mm. the international organization that spearheaded this uh, international tax, until that 
repudiated. Mm. And in essence, you've cut off the money. Or when you fund the Treasury Department, uh, you would have a rider that would say none of the funds uh, authorized by law to increase the funding by the IRS uh, by uh, funding at the IRS by $80 billion mm. shall be appropriated in this act or spent by the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, now, the, the, the Senate can refuse to pass that bill, but let's go back to OECD, and it would be in foreign operations appropriations. If the House just simply said, we're going to fund the State Department and foreign operations, but our bill will not include funding for OECD, at some point the Senate and the White House would break. Huh. They'd be stuck. And they need the and money. We, yeah. And we did that all the time. Yeah. Uh, they were normally small issues, uh, and normally there was a consensus in the House and Senate, uh, but when I was an appropriator, I never wrote an appropriation bill that I didn't direct something um, uh, that I was trying to achieve. Well, I think um, I think all these regulations, I mean, you've got it's a, a great line here from Wall Street to Silicon Valley, from the Permian Basin to the Chicago Loop, an iron net of regulation has descended across the American economy. That's great. Churchill's metaphor. Terrific, terrific, terrific. Then um, you write later on, uh, the Biden administration revealed on day one when the president instructed every department agency in office to tilt the scales of cost-benefit analysis by counting social welfare, racial justice, environmental stewardship, human dignity, equity, and the interests of future generations. They do that to measure the benefits of these government actions. And then uh, they fiddle around, they cut the discount rate in order to increase the value of future benefits, even though interest rates have gone way up. <laughs> I mean, that is just yeah. so bad. I mean, that is well, the whole thing is just bad. what equity means. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it can be anything you make it up as being. No, this is frightening stuff. This is a regulatory state in action. And, uh, you know, business is now so intimidated by this, this regulatory power uh, that it's hard to see at what point here Atlas shrugs. Mm -hmm. It's hard to see, you know, the Chamber of Commerce might have once been uh, a uh, – a reasonable national spokesman, but now uh, it's hard to see any kind of unified effort coming out from American business. Mm. So the courts are sort of the last refuge. So it, the EP and clearly, clearly this stuff has virtually no basis in law. So EPA versus West Virginia could be used to stop a lot of this stuff, couldn't it? Yeah, it's just the courts take so long. Mm. And there's so much of it. Um, I don't ever remember a ruling 
that was, wasn't specifically targeted toward the question in front of the court, you know, where, where you might have a ruling that just struck down a broad array of action. Maybe there's been one. Maybe there could be one. Uh, but uh, um, I don't remember it. But these, EP- so, these EPA actions, Phil, I mean, they are basically designed – the tailpipe, I'm talking about the tailpipe emission stuff. They're, they're basically designed to end the internal combustion engine, which we've had yeah. for whatever, 125 years or more. Um, Though the law was written to conserve gasoline in a period of gas shortage. The law had nothing to do with carbon. Mm. The law had nothing to do with the objective. It had the objective of sustaining gas-powered engines uh, by conserving fuel. Uh, And the same with the Power Plant Act. The Power Plant Act was about pollution. It wasn't about global warming. Mm. And And people do not understand the ramifications of all this. If the American public really understood what all this is going to cost, what all this is going to mean to American living standards, um, uh, there would be an uproar in the country. Uh, But we've not done a good job, maybe only because at at this point are we beginning to recognize that this is not – uh, a runaway regulatory agency or some officious bureaucrat. This is a broad wave of regulatory expansion that is built on law that is basically made up as they go. Mm. It's the total antithesis of what America's Republican form of government is about. So if we're going to end... Uh, gasoline-powered cars or the internal combustion engine, don't you think uh, somebody should vote on that? <laughs> House, the Senate? Yeah. I mean, there ought to be a vote. Well, and look, look at all of the value of our retirement funds that will be destroyed uh, by this action. Mm. Look at the cost that will be uh, born by all the moms and pops that own filling stations, uh, uh, garages, um, um, auto parts hmm. for the internal combustion, and all that will be destroyed. And then you'll have the cost of building it back in a technology that is less efficient. Hmm. Uh, one of the things that's missed here, Larry, is when you adopt a new technology that's more efficient, uh, productivity goes up, wages go up, uh, uh, the living standards of society go up. But when you adopt technology that is less efficient economically, whatever its carbon generation is, productivity goes down, wages go down, general prosperity declines. Uh, when Biden is talking about we're creating millions of new jobs in this new technology, but the new technology is not competitive. Mm. 
the new technology is less efficient. Now, it generates less carbon, supposedly. Remember, you still got to generate the electricity to put in all these cars that are running off electricity. And the idea that you can generate that electricity with uh, uh, wind and solar power is laughable. Mm. So, I mean, it's not going to work in the end, but it's going to be an extraordinarily expensive um, uh, experiment. And it's not saying the world is coming to an end, but it is saying that actions are being taken that the representatives of the American public never voted for. If you went out and asked people, what would you be willing to pay every month? to reduce carbon emissions. My guess is the average uh, family might say $10, $20. Mm. Uh, We're talking about hundreds of dollars, Mm -hmm. thousands of dollars Mm -hmm. uh, in some cases. So, uh, and this is not just all about the environment. It's about everything else. Um, It's forcing business not to be efficient in in producing goods and services, but in achieving equity, Mm -hmm. uh, whatever that means. Anyway, Phil Graham and I will be right back after this short message. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I'm talking with former Senator Phil Graham of Texas. He's now a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. His book is The Myth of American Inequality. How Government Biases Policy Debate. We've been talking about his op-ed piece this past week in the Wall Street Journal with former Senator Pat Toomey. Title of the piece is Biden is Transformational and Not in a Good Way, for sure. Uh, Phil, I wanted to spend a moment. Um, Kevin McCarthy put together a pretty good budget, including a debt ceiling hike. Uh, I don't think that Joe Biden and his folks in the White House or Chuck Schumer or whomever took McCarthy seriously, but now they have to. And I wanted to get your take on this because it's been 87 days since they last met Biden and McCarthy. Biden's been saying for several months, I won't negotiate with you until you show me a budget. Well, McCarthy just produced a debt ceiling budget. And now they they basically – Biden basically, Phil, doesn't want to cut one nickel out of the budget. That's really what's at stake here. Not one nickel. And I was remembering, what weren't your Graham-Rudman deals, weren't those about the debt ceiling years ago? Yeah, and, and Biden voted for it. <laughs> right. In fact, in his service in the, in the Senate, Biden, from Graham-Rudman till he left the Senate, he voted against uh, successful amendments to use the debt ceiling to control spending only once, and that was when it had a full-blown Republican budget on it. Hmm. So uh, this whole idea uh, that you can't uh, use the debt ceiling to rein in spending when do you deal with your overspending except when the bill collector's at the door? You get out, that's when you sit the family down 
and get out the butcher knife and cut up the credit card. Mm. I think McCarthy passed an excellent debt ceiling bill. It was strong leadership. He did what he had to do to get the job done. The House has raised the debt ceiling. It's now up to the Senate and the White House, and there will be some tense moments. But the Biden administration is shocked. They did not believe that Kevin McCarthy could put together 218 votes, and he did it. Uh, And uh, the country is much better off. Uh, As a result, we are carrying forward hundreds of billions of dollars of new social spending from the pandemic. Pandemics uh, are like wars, as it turns out. Uh, Government grows, and then they don't want to go back to their old size. Well, when the the debt ceiling is now as big as gross domestic product, uh, this is critically important to the future of the country. Uh, you've got to give Kevin McCarthy an A-plus here. Mm. Uh, there's still a lot of negotiating to do, and he's going to have to stand tall. Uh, but he now is in control of the debate. Yeah. He did something. He's in the, see the Senate pass a debt ceiling. He's in the driver's seat. He's completely well, reversed right. everything. I mean, it, right. it happened fast. I was just going back, Phil Graham. Uh, eight times in the last 38 years, debt ceilings have been used to curve spending. What I have is two Graham Rudmans during the Reagan years, once more under Papa Bush, three Clinton Gingrich deals during the yep. 90s, and two deals, two deals during the Obama years. And Biden was the point guy with John Boehner, uh, former Speaker John Boehner, in 2011. They use the debt ceiling well, to cut spending. This just proves that the Joe Biden that is sitting in the White House today is not the Joe Biden we knew in the Senate. Mm. Boy, that's a long conversation, isn't it? No, I know, but it's, uh, it is evidence, uh, clear and convincing evidence. This is a man that voted against all except one of the efforts to rein in spending on a debt ceiling uh, that passed from the time Graham Rudman passed initially uh, until he left the Senate. Hmm. Is this a, I mean, is he in charge? Is he in control? Does he know this stuff? I mean, he looks so cranky, insulting, you know, doesn't have the sense of humor he used to have as a senator. I mean, I just can't figure it out. Are people pulling his strings in there? You got all these left-wing Bernie Sanders type socialist people. I just don't get it because, as you say, it runs against everything he's done in the past as a senator. Well, the idea that it is wacko to want to rein in government spending when the national debt is as big as the economy uh, is laughable, and it is it is so true that all of the sort of crazies that were hidden away during the Obama administration are now, in essence, running things. Mm. So I don't know whether he's in charge or what, but I know 
that this is not the same Biden that I saw with in the Senate mm. and that voted for Graham Rudman. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. Anyway, Senator Phil Graham, we love you. Keep coming with all this great stuff. Tell your wife we sent our love. All right. Thank you. Same to Wendy. Take care, sir. Thanks for your time. Bye. All right. Folks, I'm Larry Cutler. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk about political dirty tricks and sleaze bags and Hunter Biden in Arkansas with a paternity suit and what's going to happen with the Alvin Bragg uh, grand jury. I'm Cudlow. Please stay with us. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And we're going to talk for a while about one Hunter Biden, son of Joe Biden, and all the goings-on that deserve to be illuminated. And we have some serious intellectual talent here. I mean, I'm talking serious intellectual talent. Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst, New York Times bestselling author. His latest book is The Trial of the Century. It's about the Scopes Monkey Trial. Release date is May 30th, but you can pre-order. Andrew McCarthy, former district U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, contributing editor of National Review, senior fellow at the National Review Institute. And his latest book is Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. Uh, gentlemen, welcome. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Both of you. Terrific stuff. Great to be with you. Yeah, no, Good to be here. Great stuff. Thank you ever so much. Um, Andy McCarthy, I'd like to begin with you. Uh, your piece in National Review, April 26, a couple of days ago. Bragg shouldn't be prosecuting Trump absent a serious crime and strong evidence. And you say that... Um, if basically, if the guy's name wasn't Trump, he'd never done this. Maybe you could talk a little bit about it because it's been out of the news the last few weeks, the last week or two. What's going on here with this trial in New York? Well, you know, Larry, it's out of the news, but every day it creates really, I don't want to be a hysterion and, and call it a constitutional crisis, but it creates real constitutional problems every day to have somebody who is under indictment running for president. And I've always been of a mind, like I think most of us are, I'm sure the three of us probably agree on this, that no one is above the law. And if you had somebody who committed a really serious crime that was backed by really serious evidence, the fact that that person wanted to run for president would not be immunity from being investigated or prosecuted. But, you know, I was a prosecutor for a long time, Uh, prosecutors exercise discretion. They don't bring a lot of cases, even when people are guilty for a wide variety of reasons. Most of those reasons are not as important as the compromise to our electoral politics and to the First Amendment that's worked by having the criminal justice system intrude into 
a political campaign. So there's questions about, you know, should Trump be under uh, a gag order? Should he be under travel restrictions? Should he be allowed to comment on the discovery that he gets in the criminal case under circumstances where the district attorney is having press conferences when he wants to have them? Mm. Uh, You know, should a judge be telling him you can't talk about the discovery when Trump legitimately has an argument to make in the campaign that the criminal justice system is being weaponized by progressive Democrats against him? Is it fair, uh, given our constitutional commitment to political speech, to have him limited in making that argument because a judge says, but I have to manage this criminal case? So every single day that that case goes on, we're having the the needs of the criminal justice system brush up against electoral politics. I think that's something we have to endure if it's a very serious crime and it's backed by serious evidence. But this thing that's been indicted is nonsense. So we're putting the country to a real burden over something that I think is a frivolous case. And Greg Jarrett, with all that um, weaponizing it, gag orders and traveling and commenting on the case, I mean, I guess Trump is doing all that. I mean, he's doing it rather well. His polls have actually gone up substantially. This whole Bragg trial uh, has completely changed the Republican primary because Trump is now leading DeSantis by, I don't know, some of these polls by 40 points. It was a close race, uh, at least polling-wise, before this. But how does this stuff get resolved? Or does it get resolved, Greg? Well, I think Americans are smart. They see this. Uh, Bragg indictment for what it is, uh, politically motivated. Uh, Bragg, this is what concerns me the most. Bragg ran for office on the promise that he was going to go after Trump with a vengeance, prosecute him, you know, put him in an orange jumpsuit. Um, that is a an egregious violation of the code of conduct for prosecutors. Their duty is to see that justice is done not to simply gain a conviction. So when you uh, politicize it in your campaign, uh, having no uh, access to the files, the evidence, and you make a promise, you are preordaining an outcome. Uh, and, you know, I, I, it's so troubling to me. And then, of course, his assistant that really conjured up, you know, a bookkeeping minister uh, misdemeanor and supercharging it with a federal felony, which I don't think you can do. He doesn't have the jurisdiction. But the assistant wrote a book mm. in which he bragged ab- about going after Trump for political reasons uh, because they hated Trump. And he writes in his book that he was a threat to the nation and our ideals, in other words, our political beliefs. So, you know, I, I, not only is it uh, a violation of lawyer ethics, but I think the case itself is deeply flawed. Forget about the statute of limitations. I mean, it, it's not a violation of the federal uh, campaign finance laws. The FEC looked at it and said this doesn't qualify, this hush money, as a campaign contribution. The feds looked at it and agreed. So, you know, people are smart. They see this for what it is, and it's only helped Trump. Yeah, it really has helped Trump. Uh, Andy McCarthy, um, they don't go back to court until December. 
is there anything going on between now and then that might be under the surface? I sure hope so, Larry. I, you know, I think if it were me and I were representing uh, the former president, I would be trying to get the case dismissed right. um, early on right. on the papers. Because, and uh, you know, I think you and Greg and I talked about this a couple of a couple of weeks ago. I think the indictment. I'm not. I'm not talking now like conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat. All that stuff. Forget about that. This is this is clinical. I think the indictment fails as an indictment mm. in the sense that, what, constitutionally speaking, what an indictment is supposed to do is put the defendant on notice of exactly what the charge is. And this indictment doesn't do that. It's, he, he basically charges 34 counts of something that he doesn't tell Trump what it is um, to make it a felony in New York law, which he has to do because otherwise he's outside the statute of limitations. But to make it a felony, he has to say that Trump not only uh, uh, manipulated his business records with fraudulent intent, but that he did it to conceal another crime. And nowhere does the indictment say what the other crime is. And I'm pretty convinced he doesn't do that because he doesn't have another crime that he has jurisdiction to prosecute because he wants to make it like a campaign finance violation. That's federal law. He's not he's not allowed to enforce that or he wants to say somehow New York election law provisions uh, applied. But this was an election for federal office. So those laws don't apply. So Bragg is not an idiot. He knows that there's a big flaw in his indictment. He didn't name the the, the uh, charge or the crime that Trump is supposedly concealing. The reason he's not doing it is he's worried about whether he has that crime. But whatever his motive is, the indictment it doesn't do what an indictment is supposed to do. So I'd be in the in, under the judge's toes trying to get it dismissed. You think this judge would throw it out in New York? <laughs> Well, I don't, know, I don't know. I don't know enough about him. But I always say my my view of it, for what it's worth, is always until the judge does something, I'm going to give the judge the benefit of the doubt. I haven't you know, I don't know. We don't know this judge. We haven't seen much of him. He may not like Trump, but that doesn't mean he can't do his job, you know, under the law. I don't think I don't think how you feel about Trump should matter here. Mm. Um, you know what? What this is about is. This is a case that was brought that wouldn't have been brought against anyone but Trump. So it's a classic uh, selective prosecution, which is a, a violation of, of the Constitution. And the indictment, you know, your your lawyer or your judge, the politics of the judge shouldn't matter any more than the politics of your uh, plumber or your chiropractor. Mm. Uh, when we're talking about something clinical, an indictment has to put the defendant on notice of what the charge is. This one doesn't. Yeah, he didn't do it. Uh, Greg Jarrett, I thought of you this morning reading my New York Post. And the down in Arkansas, you're the only one who really covered this, by the way. And you did great on our show, uh, on our TV show. So Hunter Biden is down in Arkansas in this paternity suit. And he says he, he can't afford to pay child support. And but the defense lawyers are saying, well, hang on a second. How can you afford to pay the famous Democratic fixer, Abby Lowell? All right. Who charges a rate of eight hundred and fifty five dollars per billable right. hour. And then there's another guy, Greg, whom I don't know, but uh, Kevin Morris 
is some kind of well-known Hollywood lawyer who reportedly paid off the first son's delinquent taxes to the tune of more than $2 million. Anyway, he's got all these high-priced lawyers, and, of course, he's got all these LLCs with money coming in from China and Ukraine and God knows where else. Uh, and he's down in Arkansas, which seems like a long ways away, but not for the New York Post. I mean, it's a page 10 story. So how's he how's he going to get out of this? Well, I think he's going to before Monday when he's ordered to appear in court in Arkansas. I think he's going to try to sign off on a new deal for child support. Uh, you know, the DNA tests show uh, they prove conclusively that Hunter Biden is the father of this little four year old girl. And, you know, there was an earlier paternity suit. Uh, he was declared the father, he was forced to pay child support. He agreed to it in writing. All of a sudden, he decided, I don't want to pay the money anymore. I mean, I guess he'd rather be a deadbeat dad. But now he claims poverty and he wants the agreement reduced. And the judge says, poverty? Uh, okay, prove it. She likely suspects, as everybody does, that Hunter Biden has banked millions of dollars in the many influence peddling schemes mm. that are on evidenced on the laptop. And so that puts the laptop center stage. And at one of the last hearings, the judge asked uh, Hunter Biden's lawyer, because Hunter is always a no-show at these hearings, is it your client's laptop or not? <laughs> And the response from the attorney was, well, uh, let me see here. Well, it's not my client's laptop as far as I know. And then he went on to say, I don't really know. So the judge said, well, the only guy who knows is Hunter Biden, and I'm hereby ordering him to show up to court on Monday. And, Larry, I suspect that will be one of the questions that will be posed of Hunter Biden. Of course, everybody knows it's his laptop verified by the FBI, just about every news organization the material on it is self-authenticating, including famous photos of him with prostitutes and crack pipes and so forth. Well, has he not actually ever admitted that it was his laptop? I, I no. didn't know this. No, no, no. Oh, he's never, he's never fully admitted it. You know, in some of the interviews, uh, you know, he said, well, it could be my laptop. Maybe <laughs> it's not. It could be Russian disinformation. Uh, of course, his lawyers, when they began threatening the people who exposed the laptop, uh, sent letters of demand to them. They inadvertently admitted it was his laptop and then had to walk it back the next day. So there's been no on-the-record admission. All right. Hang on. I didn't realize that he had never actually said it. Fellas, I got to take a quick break. I want to come back and talk about this. And then I want to come back and talk about dirty political tricks that we uncovered from our Secretary of State. And also uh, Merrick Garland slow walking all of this stuff. We're with Greg Jarrett. Uh, his book is Trial of the Century, coming out May 30th. Greg's a Fox News legal analyst. And we're talking Andy McCarthy, uh, former prosecutor, contributing editor of National Review. All Andy, you're a, aren't you a Fox News contributor also? I am. As yeah. soon as you were there, Larry, I figured I'd better sign up. <laughs> okay, so Andy, Andy McCarthy's a <laughs> Plus, I get, to, I get to learn from Greg. Fox News you know, contributor. A lot of heavy talent here, and I appreciate it very much. Two superstars. I, I'm Little Cudlow. We'll be right back after this. Now, back to the Larry Cudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking about Hunter Biden. 
We're talking with Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst, and his new book, The Trial of the Century, Spathoscope's Monkey Trial. By the way, Greg, I'm going to read it this weekend. Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's one of my it's one of my favorite stories. Uh, and we've got uh, Andy McCarthy, he's a former uh, prosecutor, district U.S. attorney, uh, National Review uh, contributor. Uh, his latest book is Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. He's also a Fox News contributor. Uh, Greg, just, just to finish up this Arkansas story. So Hunter won't admit it's his laptop, but that's just the silliest thing in the world. Um, his father, Joe Biden, will not acknowledge this grandchild, I guess. But it's his kid. It's Hunter's kid. And he's right. going to have to wind up paying, isn't he? I mean, it's going to be oh, front page news. Yeah, he's got to pay. And, you know, Hunter is always his own worst enemy. Um, Now he's got to answer the question, is it your laptop, only because uh, he decided to uh, go against the agreement for child support that he had previously signed. Uh, but, But, you know, I think your point is well taken. I mean, Joe Biden pretends to be the symbol of compassion for children days ago. You know, they're all our children. We have to care for them. That was all a charade. He he won't even acknowledge or help financially his own four-year-old granddaughter. So, you know, as I said to you on your television program, if you want to know how heartless the Bidens are, just just look at this incredibly sad case. Andy McCarthy, this is a discovery. You guys knew this. I didn't. That Hunter has never acknowledged that it's his computer. If he acknowledges that it's his laptop, isn't that big news? Like the press will run with that. Even the yeah, mainstream well, I, media will run with that. Yeah, as as, uh, <laughs> as Greg said, though, he's been very coy about it. You know, he he won't come out and say it's his. Huh. Um, but his lawyers have threatened to sue people for violating his privacy. And the convoluted theory of that evidently is by by going out there and suggesting that all this stuff might be his. Under circumstances where he says, where he has said publicly, is it, could it be my data? Yeah, sure, it's possible. It could be somebody <laughs> could have stolen it from me. So, you know, he's been very uh, coy about it. But I think also to, to Greg's point about the Bidens, you know, I, I find, uh, I, I mean, I, for, for 50 years, I haven't uh, been able to tolerate some of uh, Biden's meanderings on guns. But I think he'd have a lot more credibility. Um, when he talks about it, if he wasn't ignoring the fact that the FBI and uh, the ATF, the gun agency, Mm. has had evidence for a very long time, for five years, that Hunter made a false statement on a firearms application, Mm. got the gun, was actually photographed uh, parading around uh, with the gun with a a prostitute, lost the gun across the street from a school, Uh, (laughs) you know, so um, anyone else, if it was one of the three of us that this happened to, it would not take five years to investigate this. It would have taken about five days. This is an easy layup of a case, but there's been no action on it. And we have a president who talks a lot about guns in the country, but he doesn't have much to say about guns in his family, I guess. By the way, I, uh, at the top of the show talked about, you know, I didn't know that the IRS, right? I thought it was a bunch of nerdy accountants with spreadsheets worrying about <laughs> your time. The IRS is armed to the teeth, as it turns out. We don't have enough time on this segment, but that's another thing. Um, 
Greg, I just want to, we only have a minute left of some, but I just am still furious learning uh, from Jim Jordan's hearings in the House that Anthony Blinken really was a dirty political trickster organizing the Gang of 51, and now he's the Secretary of State. It just still infuriates me, Greg. I only got about 10 or 15 seconds. Take a whack. Yeah, think of it this way. That letter was pivotal in electing Joe Biden. It prevented citizens from making a fully informed decision. Yes, exactly. And he is rewarded. It's straight politics. He's rewarded with the top cabinet post. Incredible story. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. It's great to be here with you. I want to talk some more about all this crazy green energy stuff that the Bidens are proposing. And we talked to Phil Graham a little bit about um, ending the internal combustion engine, uh, taking over the car business, ending the fossil fuel business. The massive expense of that is almost beyond belief. The central planning socialist uh, uh, representation is almost beyond belief what they're doing. But I want to talk to my pal, uh, Tomas Phillipson, former chairman of the White House uh, Council of Economic Advisors during the Trump years. And he's now a professor of public policy at the University of Chicago. Uh, Tomas, welcome back. Your point here, your your article in, in National Review is, I mean, apart from all the other problems, the rich pollute more, but the poor have to pay more. So you write that when EPA's proposed rules promoting electric vehicles released this week, climate policy continues to be pushed in a way that makes the poor take the hit for curing the pollution of the rich. I don't think people understand that. Uh, You know, the Bidens say they're progressives, you know, like good socialists. They're trying to make everybody equal. But the reality is the poor get hurt. I, I mean, it's not electric vehicles cost more than gas-powered vehicles. I mean, it's about $60,000 versus, I don't know, forty-five dollars or $50,000 on average. Uh, but those EVs, Tomas, uh, they really cost a lot more, those Teslas. I mean, it's a rich man's game, for heaven's sakes. And then they're trying to – well, anyway, you go ahead and explain your position. Well, I think – I mean, the bottom line is that – the Biden administration implicitly, not explicitly, obviously, but implicitly they're against progressive uh, climate policy in the progressive sense that economists think of it, which is helping the poor versus the rich. So the basic issue is that, you know, suppose you want to reduce emissions one way or another. We can argue about how fast, how much, et cetera, but suppose that's the objective. There's kind of two ways you can go about it, which the administration has focused almost predominantly on one. One is to substitute into more costly green energy. Green energy is more costly. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a policy problem to start with. People would just go there and there wouldn't be an argument. The markets would just adopt it. So it's more costly. And therefore, you're raising prices. By pushing people into green energy, you're raising energy prices. That hurts the poor a lot more than the rich because the poor has a larger share of their income spent on energy, uh, both directly in terms of energy direct consumption, but also 
but they consume fewer goods and services, which uses energy to produce them, essentially. And then, Tomas, I don't mean to interrupt, but I just want to make a point here. Uh, This, you know, it's getting jammed down their throats. Basically, they're so overwhelming, these executive orders, right? Uh, If they are implemented, if they are implemented, they're not going to give the the poor, but it's the middle-income people, lower-middle-income people, and poor people. They don't have a chance because of these executive orders, which are, as I say, they're jamming the substitution of green for carbon down their throats. Yeah, Look, no, I agree. And, and that's we, just saw it, it, we just saw it here in New York. The governor is banning gas-powered stoves, right? They're jamming it down their throats. So all the people that own gas-powered stoves, which used to, you know, is, a fa- is a favorite for many people, they're going to have to go out and spend all this money to get electric stoves, just like you're going to force them to go out and spend all this money to buy electric cars. It's crazy. Yeah, no, but that's exactly why it's regressive what they're doing, because they're forcing the high price, higher price of green energy on the poor, mm. which essentially takes a bigger hit in percentage terms, if you want, in their, in their spending on adopting these higher prices. So that's the issue. That's the difference from innovation, we argue, the second main way we can get at this problem of reducing emissions. If you innovate, the essence of innovation is the lower prices as opposed to raise them. So innovation will ultimately bring green energy prices below brown energy prices. And that will be progressive because the poor will benefit most from those price reductions relative to the rich, essentially. That's why... Tomas, can you can you go closer to a window or something? You're breaking up a little bit. Okay. Is that better or no? Yeah, I think that's better. Okay. So that, uh, if, if you didn't hear me before, the, the two issues, the two ways of doing this is either substituting into existing green energy, which is more expensive, or inflate down the cost of green energy below that of brown energy, which will then benefit the poor more than it benefits the rich, essentially. So mm. innovation is progressive, but this costly substitution into existing green energy is regressive, essentially, because the poor are taking a bigger hit from it. And that's an important difference, I think, which is not realized. If you look at the Inflation, the inflation Reduction Act, 77% of the spending in it, new spending in it, most to subsidies, which basically push people into this cost of energy. There's no free bunch of more expensive green energy. But Biden wants to say we're making it cheaper with the subsidies. But people have to pay taxes yeah, for the subsidies. Right. Yeah. And by the way, and subsidies increase aggregate demand and inflation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the so-called... The IR, the, the green right, yeah. No, no, the misnamed Inflation Reduction Act, and you say this in your article, 77.6% of it is new spending involving large-scale subsidies for such substitutes. That's inflationary Be- because, Tomas, tax – what are ta- – it's all about tax credits, right? Tax credits for cars, tax credits for various green energy production. Uh, what's a tax credit? It's spending through the tax code. In fact, in, exactly. in, in many yeah. cases, it's a direct government check, is it not? 
Yeah, no, so the total price of green energy is not only the, the subsidized price you pay when, at the, when you buy your Tesla, it's plus the taxes you have to pay for those subsidies, mm-hmm. right? Right. And that, total, and, and that total price has obviously gone up. There's no free lunch of avoiding that, that green energy is more costly. You don't get around it by just subsidizing it because people have to pay for those subsidies, presumably. So and- I think it's just the Part of the price is paid in the tax as opposed to at the time you purchase the product. And and there's if if they get all these rules passed and implemented, they will end free choice. There's no consumer choice, Tomas. I mean, if I want to buy no, I mean, it, if I want to yeah. buy a Ford SUV, okay, uh, they won't let me. In ten years, they will not let me if they have their way. Why? Because there's not going to be any gas-powered cars if they have their way. So Americans will not have any blood. There's no goddamn choice, which is... I agree that there's limited choice, but in in addition, that limited choice, you can handle that, Larry, because you've been successful. There's a lot of people for which that mandatory behavior is too expensive and it's hurting them. Yeah, Right. That's exactly right. No, 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 that's exactly right. You're forcing people, uh, I mean, they're going to have to allocate their family budgets, so much more of their family budgets, right, to these electric cars uh, because the government is mandating it. And, you know, and that's going to make them poorer every place. They won't be able to buy groceries, for God's sakes. I mean, they're facing a larger percentage burden to buy this more expensive green energy than a rich person would eventually. But they're they're also – very regressive rules. Forget the subsidies, just the regulations, right? We have now EPA comes out with uh, electric vehicle rules, but there's no rules on mansions. There's no rules on yachts. There's right. no rules on jets. Right. Uh, it's only rules on things that essentially affect the poor more in their consumption. The green, you know, this this green obsession is a rich man's game. That's It's an elitist rich man's game. And they've and and think of all the jobs lost, Tomas. You know, blue blue collar, hard hat jobs. People that make pipelines. People that work in refineries. Uh, you know, people that work in the oil fields. Those jobs will be gone. Well, what are they? Yeah, they, those are those are middle class blue collar jobs. They're going to all be destroyed. Right? This I don't know what the number is. Somebody I think the head of the American Petroleum Institute uh, told me on the air. 11 million jobs in the fossil fuel industry. Now, those are just the primary, not the secondary, you know, the diners that go next to the jobs or the hotels. But that's a lot of jobs to lose, and that's what they're going to lose. The main problem with that is is that you're losing jobs from efficient, more cheap energy and putting it into more expensive, right? So, So Biden will argue, when you say that, Biden will argue, look at all these new green jobs. Right. That we created. And that I always say, it's like saying if we had a typewriter subsidy Mm. instead of computers, we would have a whole new typewriter industry bloom up out of nothing. Look at all these new typewriter jobs that are created because you're pushing people into an inefficient way of doing things. There's more people producing less as opposed to economic growth, which is less people producing more. Right, (laughs) That's exactly right. Good line, Tomas. Hold on to that line. Anyway, we're going to jump. Tomas Phillips, an old friend. He was the CEA chair 
uh, for the last couple of years of the Biden administration. And he's a smart guy, and he's teaching at the Is University the of Chicago. I hope not. I'm sorry, the Trump administration. <laughs> no, you'll stay on the right side. Thank you, Tomas Phillips. And folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. I'm still Larry Kudlow, and I worked in the Trump administration. Uh, we're going to talk some economics with Breitbart's John Carney right after this brief message. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We bring in my great pal, John Carney, uh, from Breitbart News, author of the Breitbart Business Digest, which is must-read. John, thanks. Can I just ask you, I'm trying to read, figure this out this morning. Is First Republic Bank gone down or not? Is the FDIC taking it over or not? Is there going to be a bailout or not? I mean, what's going on with First Republic? So, yes, it is. I do not believe it will be able to open for business on Monday. Ah. They, you know, the last of their, they lost $100 billion of deposits sometime after they were given $30 billion of deposits by a consortium of banks. So, in other words, the customers are fleeing this thing. The stock is down 97% from the year if you know if the market had remained open for a couple more hours on Friday afternoon, it would have been down, you know, to a dollar. Uh, this is not it's not viable right now. I think the only reason they haven't announced anything is there's a bit of a game of chicken between the um, regulators, the FDIC on the one hand, and the banks. The banks want the FDIC to seize it, and mm. then they want to buy parts of it. They don't want to have to, you know, buy it as a ongoing, you know, living entity for fear of what liabilities they may end up ultimately taking on. So what they want, they think it's cleaner from their point of view. Let it fail. Probably, look, this bank is another bank that has a lot of uninsured deposits. Mm, I don't know how many of them are left there. That's what I was going to ask, John. What's that's? And what are they having to pay for those uninsured deposits? That's right. A lot of that money, uh, those uninsured deposits, are fleeing partly because people are a little concerned, you know, what will happen to this bank. But another thing is you can put your money in a money market fund Mm. that will basically park it at the Federal Reserve in its overnight reverse repo facility. Yep. And you'll, you'll be earning probably more than you were in your savings account. And by the way, that's even safer than an FDIC-insured bank account. This is just money at the Fed. It's the safest counterparty you could possibly have. So that's putting a lot of pressure on banks, including this one, especially for these very big deposits, right? If you have over $250,000, why would you have it in a bank account that's paying you 1% or 2% when you can put it in a you know, a money market fund that's going to pay you 4 or 5%? Yeah, I was going to ask you, John. I was, I was thinking those money funds – they're probably paying close to 5%, which isn't bad. And and they're not even doing it in, you know, by taking on any risk. That's the big, you know, issue here is that you have, you still have overnight liquidity because it's being put into an overnight uh, fund at the Fed. Mm. Uh, you still have complete safety and you don't have insurance, but you don't need insurance because there's nothing happening to it and your counterparty is the Fed. And so essentially this has this facility that was designed to provide stability to the money market mm. uh, system is actually now creating instability in the banking system. You know, uh, 
I don't know. The news of this has been somewhat muted, but it will grow if they make a deal. And, you know, I I expect to see um, a lot more publicity. Is this going to damage confidence? Is this going to damage the economy, John? You know, what's the impact here, do you think? I do think that there will be some damage to confidence. I think it will cause more banks to start. Remember, we we went through like there was a two week period after Silicon Valley Bank failed Mm. in which it looked like banks were really going to pull back on lending. Uh, They were afraid of, you know, there being more runs on the bank. But then that seemed to go away. What we what we found out was actually it hadn't gone away. It was still going on over at uh, First Republic. And this is, I think, going to be a wake up call. We're going to see banks have to become more conservative Mm in how they're lending. The Fed's report that it put out about the failure of Silicon Valley Bank also sort of said we should be putting more pressure on banks to be more conservative. Mm. So I think um, we this is going to, once again, sort of add to the tightening of the financial you know, status of the United States right now. Uh, it, it's at least worth, you know, probably another uh, you know, this it's as if the Fed hiked. Basically. Uh, right. Right. Sure. 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 Financial conditions are going to get tighter. Lending conditions are going to get tighter. Uh, John Carney, what one other point on this Fed and the banks? I noticed. So the Fed had an internal study of what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. And lo and behold, they actually acknowledged that the supervisors, the supervisory function, which is bank examiners in plain English, did not do their job monitoring Silicon Valley Bank. And they did find, they found problems, but, you know, they didn't stop the problems. They didn't shut it down or shut parts of it down. And I'm going to guess First Republic the same thing, and maybe there's other banks. But, John, having said that, Uh, This guy, Barr, who's the blah, blah, vice chairman for supervision, they still want to increase regulation. There's a difference between regulations and bank examiners, as you know. Regulations mean more red tape, more stress tests, more this, more that, which hurts smaller banks. So even though they acknowledge it was this is a Fed problem, the San Francisco Fed examiners didn't do their job. But it, but now they want to regulate more, which is, I think, going to do more damage. I don't know. What do you think? I think that there was there's a slight problem with this uh, Fed examination. While it seems like they're admitting they did they did something wrong, it's really Barr pinning this on his predecessor Quarles. Oh, so right, he, right. He is, there's there's a little politics. So we have the you know the Biden guy saying, "Yeah, we screwed up," but what he really means is those Trump guys messed up. <laughs> and so that's that. And and what they're doing here is saying, "And now we want to do a bunch of the rules that Elizabeth Warren has been telling us we should be doing." Yeah. So they 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 have acted as if this is not a political act, but it really is. I do think that there were regulatory failures, but on the other hand, the system is set up not so that no bank can fail. We know there are a couple of banks that we really can't afford to let fail because they're so big, right? It's, but a small to medium-sized bank, and these banks are on the large size of medium, uh, is not supposed to be guaranteed never to fail by our regulatory and supervisory systems. It's supposed to be that when it does go down, 
there's enough assets there to pay out the depositors and that the system as a whole doesn't get shaken. And so far, it's more or less working out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. John, it's raining here in New York. (laughs) All right, it's pouring out. I guess, I don't know if it is in Connecticut, but it's pouring out in New York. And I know it's Trump's problem. Everything that goes wrong, everything that goes wrong in life is Donald Trump's problem, according to the Biden administration. I mean, I find that amusing, John, but also ultimately stupid. And they're doing they're going to do more harm than good. I do not think we need more regulation. But anyway, in our remaining time, um, I, I haven't talked to you in a couple of days on the TV show, but. I thought the numbers yesterday and the day before, the 1.1% GDP. But, John, if you look, and I'm sure you have, uh, and I read, I skimmed your uh, articles. Um, let's see. Hot inflation measures mean at least one more Fed hike. That's right. I agree with you there. But on the economy, John Carney, consumer spending carried it. In the first quarter, business investment collapsed. But if you look at the numbers yesterday, the consumption, personal consumption numbers, uh, it was all January, February and March. They fell. And I think that's a bad omen for the second quarter. It is. It means we've lost momentum. There was a kind of burst of activity in January. We saw that in things like the employment numbers. Remember, that was when we had the 500,000 jobs created. So there was a big burst of activity in January. That that did fade in February and March. And the only thing I will say to counterweight that Mm. is that when we look at some of the real-time survey data from places like S&P Global, it looks like there may have been an uptick in April. That, oh. that March may huh. have been the, huh. the most recent love. All right. Well, we'll have to follow that. That's an interesting point. I did see you were writing about that. Uh, but I'm worried about the collapse of business investment. Anyway, folks, John Carney, co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest, which is a must-read. We're going to take a break and do some stock market work on the other side. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. By the way, you can join us during the week. Fox Business Network, name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. If you can't make it at 4, you can DVR us. Just text your favorite nine-year-old. She'll show you how to DVR, no problem. And uh, here we... uh, you can get us on the internet. Live stream us on the internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. Plays all across the country, around the globe, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. We're going to do some stock market work with uh, two distinguished investors. David Bonson is the founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group. He's the author of There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. He's got a No Free Lunch video series. And uh, Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services, Chicago's leading restaurateur. Uh, Jimmy, I don't know if you see the Wall Street Journal editorial. Everybody's moving out of Illinois. Oh, no. Not only did I see it, I've been feeling it. And it's not the people you think. It's the young kids getting out of college. It's it's really a terrible, terrible thing. Like, I have to fight to keep my own kids who are successful young adults from moving to Denver or moving to Florida. It's a terrible thing. 
Well, what is it? I don't get Pritzker is a businessman or was a businessman. I mean, I understand the Chicago disaster and all that. But Pritzker, mm-hmm. should, he should know better, shouldn't he? The guys, the Pritzker yeah. family is a great business family, for heaven's sakes. Yeah, but does that mean he's a great businessman? If you're born on third base and thought you hit a triple, I mean, maybe he just thinks everything <laughs> comes comes easy. I don't, you know, I don't know how how that family made their money, but I've been watching him pretty closely over the last few years, and everything. Again, when all the vectors point to economic destruction instead of prosperity, you have to think something seems almost intentional. It's the craziest thing, but living here is like a dystopian nightmare when you see the policies they try to push. Well, what uh, you own all these restaurants? What what? You know, how's your business? Well, restaurant, the restaurant business, we, the, our, uh, our restaurant is packed and it's a, in a price point that makes it an affordable luxury. Mm. I have friends within the business who are absolutely sucking wind. The only way they can try to make a profit is to jack up prices huge. And now they're actually seeing foot traffic go down. But to that point, though, there, there is still, you know, there's 30% of the people who got transferred a lot of money from the from the poor over the last three years because of stupid policies and people are spending money at the top end still mm. so you know we're, so we're doing okay but yeah, it's a tough business all right good now david bonson how goes your battle versus jp morgan well the shareholder meeting is on may 16th so we have a couple weeks they just confirmed my uh speech at the meeting yesterday uh, my thought, uh, you know, I was going to have uh, Governor and then Ambassador Sam Brownback up here with me because his uh, account closing was one of the things that that sort of catalyzed my effort here. But they're only giving me three minutes to speak, and so we're not going to be able to fit both of us in. Uh, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. We've already had really good dialogue with the company. Uh, I just want to continue to reiterate for, so conservatives understand Sometimes there are companies that hate our cause, and other times there are companies that don't even know people like us exist. Right. And that's that's what I think is going on out there. Well, walk just, through walk through what what you're trying to do there. This is an ESG issue. Well, it's it's ESG, but it's it's a lot of things. Larry, it's more than that because they're all I did is ask the company as a shareholder. I'm a significant shareholder in J.P. Morgan personally, and then of course on behalf of clients, we own. You know, hundreds of millions of dollars of stock. And I asked the company, based on reports that they were closing accounts and debanking people based on their religion mm. and their politics, mm. to do an investigation, do an analysis to make sure that that wasn't happening, that they were in their course of their great efforts to avoid discrimination on the basis of race, gender, and sexual orientation, that they were also making sure they avoided discrimination the basis of religion and politics. And my theory is it is happening, but that it's not known about on Park Avenue. And so that let's let Park Avenue find out it's happening so they can go into the field and say, hey, this has to stop. What are you guys doing? So I just asked them to simply run an investigation. They declined to put that initiative on the shareholder agenda. We appealed to the SEC and the SEC ruled in our favor. Well, tell me just one more thing. You mentioned debanking. So but J.P. Morgan is actually closing accounts? Well, there's no question there's reports of that. And if there's some other explanation, if there were some of these individual people, if Sam Brownback's people for his organization, his sort of not-for-profit, religious values type of 
think tank that they closed the account on, that they didn't dot all their I's and do all their paperwork, mm. then that's fine. You know, you, you can't have an account open if you don't do the paperwork. But let's have them say, no, this was because of paperwork. We're sure that we're not discriminating. But there are too many reports of debanking going on of groups that happen to be Christian-oriented, happen to be Catholic, happen to be conservative politically, mm. and, and it warrants an investigation because if that is happening— um, last I checked, banks want depositors, and it's good for business to have more deposit funding. And so I, as a shareholder, have an economic interest in them not doing that. Right. Jimmy Urio, First Republic could use some depositors. <laughs> yes, first of all, David Bunsen, way to go on that. If there's anything I can do to help that, keep fighting this this stuff. That's this, that's inspiring that you're doing that. But yeah, First Republic, uh, the, the, you saw the Fed came out then saying, you know, trying to figure out why this happened. And they don't mention all the fact that they raised rates at one of the most aggressive um, paths in, in its history. Um, you know, this is just a question of banks were too stupid to hedge their long-term uh, bond risk, mm-hmm. which, by the way, it, it literally is a five-minute exercise to have done that. It's called buying a 10-year treasury put spread. I could have done it for them in a second. Um, and it's expensive, but it's a lot, of, lot less expensive than going out going out of business. And they, they took the risk, and the question becomes, when you've seen now three cockroaches, how many cockroaches exist? Mm. Um, I do think that the Fed you know, plans on putting in a backstop, which Again, that starts a whole new host of problems. I feel frustrated this morning. All, everything we talk about is putting me in a bad mood. No. Yeah, so it's, uh, <laughs> it's raining, too. <laughs> it's pouring here in New York. By the way, that's... Hey, Larry, can I, but as far as Jim's point there about the banks and not hedging the interest rate risk, I've really been studying this since Silicon Valley went down and really unpacking because it's one of those things where I suspect there's a lot of bad actors, a lot of mistakes made. But I think the Fed is getting off way too easy here. Mm. I'm sorry. Amen. But the Fed said at the beginning of 2022, Jim, that they were going to start raising rates a quarter point and that they were going to end the year at 150 basis points. All right. So why are you going to erode all of your net interest margin with hedging costs when the Fed has told you they're going to be at 150? But then they went to 525. Can the I answer Fed- that? The, but what, but my point is on the deposit interest, because now we're dealing with First Republic, where their issue is not their bond portfolio, it's their loan book. Mm-hmm. They have almost zero defaults. There's no credit impairment. These are really good borrowers. They got a rate at 2 to 3%, and now First Republic has to borrow from the Fed at 5 and they're bleeding 2 to 3% of negative net interest margin. And I'm but saying that the Fed told them to do it. Yes, I know, but this is, and I've heard this argument from other smart people too. But I, why do we listen to the Fed? They don't, they have a slightly below average record as being prognosticators. They were also telling us in June of 2021 when CPI had already printed over five percent that it was absolutely transitory. They were going to let this roll a little bit, and they then they bought another 250 billion dollars of mortgage back bond. They're not the best at this. Um, I don't. I'm getting tired of being a Fed basher, but uh, they're not particularly good. I mean, I can give you. 50 different economists and, and investors, including yourself, who were saying yeah. inflation is a bigger problem than they were thinking it was. So don't listen to the Fed. Listen to the market. Well, yeah, but the, prob- the problem is that we're confusing the Fed doing the right or wrong thing as to what they ought to be doing a policy versus the banks having to predict what they're going to do. And, and that's, the, that's the mistake I'm referring to here is Understood. that the for- forward guidance 
has actually been incredibly reliable since 1994. I think it's a mistake. I don't like forward guidance as a tool. I think they should be responding to nominal GDP growth, period. And let that, have, let that have the impact it has, but not try to manipulate the business cycle. So you and I are on the same page there. I suspect Larry is too. But look, this uh, is yeah. ridiculous. They I, lied. They said they were going to do something, and they did something different. Well, I think Ford, I think Ford guidance is a bad idea. I've always thought it was a bad idea. And um, I don't know whether these banks listen to them or not. Most of these banks have their own economic departments or, you know, they have plenty of people uh, – Customers come in, you know, brokers come in and give them their own point of view. But I, I think the Fed is misleading. I mean, I grew up uh, more or less during the Volcker era. Volcker would not give forward guidance. He kept everybody guessing. I thought that was a better way to operate. I thought that was a better way to vanquish inflation concerns or deflation concerns. Um, I mean, I don't think the banks should should ever listen. Uh, look at, so on that point, David Bonson, I'm just looking at the GDP report, um, nominal GDP, which is coming down on a quarterly basis, 5.1, uh, in the first quarter, that advance report, but it's still 7% on the four quarter change. And, um, these deflator numbers are running just, um, just south of 5%. So my question is, is the Fed's going to uh, this coming week raise the target rate by another quarter of a point? I think that's a consensus view. Maybe you disagree with that. Uh, But they still have work to do based on those metrics. Yeah, see, the issue there is, and I don't even know how our friend Jim feels about this, so it's it's possible I'm about to get criticized. I hope not. But the problem is that that, um, there's, there's a grain of salt that's really important in that. And that is that about 300 basis points of the deflator is a shelter number that is utter fantasy land. Mm. If people believe rents are growing at 8.8% and housing is growing at 8.2%, I encourage them to put uh, their house up on the market for rent and see what happens. It isn't true. And the Fed knows this. Um, now, I wrote an article last week at my own DividendCafe.com pointing out that it was also true the other way two years ago that it was understating inflation when rents were bubbling higher and housing was bubbling higher. And now it's doing the opposite. But my, I think, uh, Larry, that the argue, they are going to raise rates quarter point, but why do we all think that? For the same reason, forward guidance. Mm. The futures market is saying there's an 88% chance they're going to do it. They've had four Fed governors go on TV for the last three weeks to say, yep, we're going to do it. Mm. So they're still tell, you know, telling us what they're going to do. Um, do, do we think the market left to its own devices would raise rates a quarter point this week? No way. No possible way. Can uh, I chime in on that one too? Um, cool. uh, just looking at the personal income report that was out, I guess, yesterday for March. So core, core services, X housing prices, um, they have come down, but it's the last three months, 4.6% annually, and the last 12 months, 4.4%. So on that but, basis, you're yeah. still uh, twice the Fed's target. I mean, I don't yeah, know. If, if you do an annualized number, Larry, not year over year, but if you do the last nine months and the last six months and annualize it, then it's 2%. 
So there's still a base effect from from the prior. But you're right. It's still higher than their target, the way that they report it. I don't want to start moving the goalpost around to get the number to where they want it to be. My point is that when you see core goods inflation at zero percent, you have to think services are following. Well, they probably will. Jim Urio, I notice gold has stopped rising and oil has stopped rising. Oil fell this week. Crude oil down 1.4%. So that's 76, call it 77. Brent crude, 79. Uh, Commodity prices softening again, Jim? I think it was just position squaring. You know, the move that happened in crude on the night that OPEC decided to cut production, you know, was a a 6% move higher. The market has a tendency to trace back. Because remember, it's pushed around by people who have, big positions on often. I think the fundamental backdrop for both gold and crude for different reasons is still very positive. Like the the question with gold becomes, do you think the Fed is about to overdo it? And you guys were just talking about the fact that, you know, the the shelter component is huge. The energy component is huge in CPI, but nobody mentioned the fact that we all know that, that rate hikes have a, let's say a minimum of a six months uh, lag time before we feel efficacy. So this rate hike is probably, even if they went to neutral right now and just said, we just want to see what the fallout is, that would be a better move than hiking rates. But the point is that if we're going into recession and then all of a sudden, if the Fed funds futures curve is right and the Fed is easing 50 to 75 basis points by the end of this year and a full 200 basis points by the end of 2024, which, you know, I'm not certain that that's right. So I do think that they're getting themselves into trouble, but then money's going to be injected back into the system. The the traditional rate sensitive um, economic stocks won't be getting the money and it could go to gold. It could go to Bitcoin. It could go to oil for, for slightly different reasons. I think both those things are still where I want to be. I love the Bitcoin play up 7.6% for the week. It's back, it's yeah, back it's to tw- 29,336. 29, <laughs> All right, let's take a quick break on Bitcoin. We were, we're talking with David Bonson and Jim Urio, two of the best of the best. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I'm here talking stocks and other things. I love other things, by the way. David Bonson, founder, managing partner of the Bonson Group, and Jim Urio, director, TJM Institutional Services. Um, David, when is your uh, JPM speech appearance? The annual shareholder meeting on May 16th, so a couple weeks a couple weeks away here. Will you come on our show that day? Um, I sure will, you'll, absolutely. You'll be in New York, right? Uh, no, they're doing it remotely. It's virtual, and so I will um, – actually, let's see, Larry. I will be in New York uh, right after that, though, so I could, I could come on the TV show. Yeah, I would love to. All that. right. We'd love to have you on set to report on all this. I mean yeah, – this, the idea that J.P. Morgan, and, I, and Jim Urio agreed with this, the idea that they are closing accounts uh, based on some political or religious or whatever is insane. I mean, I don't think people know this. And, um, no, and, and, and I really think the problem is that you get like local bank managers and they have young people that are woke and they have they're empowered to do it. And I don't think Jamie Dimon is out telling people don't bank for Sam Brownback. Mm. I think Jamie Dimon is the one who needs to know what's happening because I think the C-suite would stop it. But they're denying it there. And, and all I'm saying is, well, let's make sure. Let's find out. Mm. And, and everyone will be better off. Sam Brownback, to our listeners, a very distinguished former House member, former senator, 
and a former ambassador and just an all-around wonderful human being. I've known him for years. So that's and a supply cider, I should add. A supply cider yeah, to his core. He's a supply cider. Um, Jim Uriel, how do you make some money right now? What are you thinking? Okay, so here's what I don't like about the stock market. If you look at how it's performed and the illusion that it's doing well, it's just you know the big caps are doing well. If you took it to S and P and equal weighted it, it would be down for the year. If you you know they cap weighted it's up. If you look at the Russell versus the Nasdaq, um, you know the Russell's not doing well at all compared to the Nasdaq. So it's, to me, that's almost like a flight to quality thing. Like I don't, I don't know what else to buy, so let's buy you know some some big bank or big company. I don't love that very much, and I won't I won't start liking the broad market until S and P maybe settles a week above forty two fifty, which is not that far away. But I, right now I think it's just back and forth. So in the meantime, I still like the plays that I've been going with for a while, which is gold, which is going to be crude. It had to satisfy some things on the upside first and i'm going to get more into that and again and you said bitcoin i like bitcoin too. and again i barely even know what the heck bitcoin is but mm. i know that people use it as a proxy for the banking system mm. and for fiat currencies both things that seem to be taking a lot of punches right now i've been in bitcoin and i'm, I'm going to stay that way yeah well <clears throat> i i know as much as you know which is i guess not enough but i do right. follow it it's very very interesting well, what's to know? You know, if it's, it's going up, you know, notice yeah. when it's going up and then, uh, you know, stay with that. People told me to buy it when it was six, five, six hundred dollars. And like a dummy, I didn't. <laughs> I know it went to 60,000, but it's still 29,000. <laughs> it's doing better than First Republic. David Bonson, how do you make some money here? What do you recommend? <laughs> well, I, I, I will say, You buy Bitcoin, David Bonson? Absolutely not. And I'll tell people to, tell people to be to be real careful about that because the idea that Bitcoin is a proxy against the banking system, it was a pretty bad year for the banks last year, and Bitcoin went from 70000 to 15000 um, and And people have said, well, Bitcoin is Bitcoin is, Bitcoin's the hedge against the Fed, you know, and you had this just the Fed raising rates last year. If you want to know a correlation, it's Bitcoin and the NASDAQ. That's what's correlated. <laughs> oh, God. All right. The music is playing. I think we're running out of time. You guys are fabulous. David Bonson and Jim Urio, two very good friends of mine. Thank you, gentlemen. Folks, we're going to have money and politics up next after the break. we got Monica Crowley and Steve Moore. I'm still Cudlow. Stick around. Lots more to do. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. We're going to talk money and politics with Monica Crowley, former assistant secretary at the U.S. Treasury during the Trump administration and the author now of the Monica Crowley podcast. And we also finally found Steve Moore. How about that? Very good, Steve. FreedomWorks, uh, Heritage Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and more money. WABC radio host, his show follows this show. Steve Moore's great show follows this show on many of these same stations. Welcome to both of you. Monica, I would say right now Kevin McCarthy, 10, Joe Biden, 0. Nobody believed in the White House that McCarthy would put together a debt ceiling increase budget, but they did. And it's a good one, and it's been well-received everywhere. And Joe Biden is now – this is day 87 where he has not had another meeting 
with McCarthy, and he's been saying for months, get me a budget and I'll talk to you, but he won't. And I think uh, it's doing Biden a lot of damage, and I think Kevin McCarthy is the number one politician right now in Washington, D.C. What do you think? Well, it's great to be with you, Larry, and Steve as well. Good afternoon. And I agree with you. I think, you know, expectations were pretty low for Speaker McCarthy, given the Republicans' past track record in terms of trying to herd the cabs and put together a reasonable, responsible package to handle the debt ceiling now and into the future. But McCarthy did exactly that because I think he really understands, and I think the majority of Republicans now understand, what a dire moment this is for the country. I mean, if you handle the debt crisis in this country, the deficit crisis, the spending crisis, the out-of-control government crisis, if you handle it now, we might, might be able to stave off a real economic implosion and other kinds of uh, attendant emergencies that are heading toward us unless we handle this now. So McCarthy gets it. I think part of it was a function of the fact we had 20 Republicans hold out in January of this year, they were not going to vote for him for speaker unless and until he agreed to certain conditions, including how to handle the debt ceiling. So they have held him to it, and he has been able to bring the party together with a very responsible plan. I also agree with you, Larry, that, you know, the, the difference between now and in the past is that in the past, Republicans really haven't been unified. They haven't really felt They may have felt strongly about it personally, but there was not a lot of political will to handle reining in spending and so on. This moment is very different. Mm. And and this is why I think it's going to, unlike previous times where the Republicans were, in fact, blamed for a government shutdown, um, you know, shutting down certain aspects of the government and so on. I think this time around it's going to be different because not only do the Republicans get it, but I think most of the American people get the emergency moment we're in as well. Well, well, basically, Steve Moore, there's only one person or one group that has a plan to increase the debt ceiling, and that is Kevin McCarthy in the House Republicans. The Chuck Schumer has no plan to increase the debt ceiling. Joe Biden has no plan to increase the debt ceiling, and they're going to have to come to McCarthy. They are going to have to negotiate. You've got Democrats who may not agree with McCarthy's plan, but they're all calling for Biden to negotiate. This is day 87. I'm keeping count. Day, I had Kevin on the show the, uh, the day after he put this thing out. Day 87, Steve. No meeting, yeah. uh, no cup of coffee, no Diet Coke with a Hershey bar, uh, no drive-in movie, no nothing. He, this Biden can't survive. He's going to have to fold on this. Well, first of all, first of all, I agree with everything Monica said. I think she summarized it perfectly. And you know, I, I would just add that maybe uh, maybe uh, Kevin McCarthy for Time Magazine Man of the Year. Yes, he's, he's yes. Had an amazing, amazing he's, performance. Steve, he's the most popular. Look, I've seen the polls. Yeah, he is right now the most popular politician in Washington. <laughs> now he, that's a low bar. <laughs> he, no, but he he listen yeah, to know, this. He has a plus yeah. ten approval rating. Yeah. Plus ten. No one's even close to that. Sorry. Yeah. So look, I, I and I I'm some I'm someone over the years who's kind of run hot and cold on McCarthy. So I'm not a but I think he's done a sensational job. And by the way, everything is, that he is in his package is reasonable and popular. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and you talk about these things on your show every night as, you know, 
work requirements. Oh, my God, that's a MAGA policy. 80% of Americans right. want work requirements for welfare. And, you know, getting rid of the IRS funding and you know, putting a cap on spending and getting rid of this idiotic, uh, you know, student loan bailout so mm-hmm. taxpayers can pay for people who don't pay their loans. Those are very sensible, common sense policies. Now, let's just shift to where Biden is right now. I was on Fox News this morning, and this woman who was on with me saying, you know, the, the Republicans are a threat to democracy. and That's their you know, latest line. I'm like, wait a minute. Democracy, is, you've got a, a Republican House and a Democratic president, and, and you've got a president who says he's not going to negotiate. That's not the way, that's right. not the way democracy right. works. Right. Right? And so uh, I think he's and, – and, you know, my advice, my only problem with, with McCarthy is I don't want him to keep asking – Biden to negotiate. You know, I, I think I said this on your show last week, uh, and Larry, you've never experienced this, but I've experienced it many times. If you ask a girl out four times to go out with you, <laughs> and she keeps saying no, she doesn't want to go out with you, all right? Well, so wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> I, I, gotta, I proposed to, to my saintly wife, I don't know, five or six times before she hit the bit. Monica, Monica was the hardest tra- hardest sale I ever made, Monica. she I kept proposing to her, and she kept telling me no. What do you make of that, Monica? Well, as, as the only woman in this discussion, <laughs> I want to say, you know, um, you and your wife, Larry, are an extraordinary couple. Well, so, we've been married. Know. We've been married 35 years, but I'm just That's saying I, I had to ask for negotiation five times. Yes. Well, good, good for Judy. Good for Judy. She was playing hard to get. She drove it hard right. and more That's power right. to her. Right. Yeah. Um, look, I, I think. Look, the the Democratic Party is not the Democratic Party of your fathers and your grandfathers, okay? This is not the party of FDR or JFK or even Bill Clinton. This is a radical revolutionary party. All of the energy and activism are on the radical left with the AOCs of the world. Joe Biden is basically a succeed puppet, and so he is going along with how the radicals have been directing his administration all along. This is why he is like, well, I'm drawing a land, a line in the sand, and I'm not going to negotiate on controlling any, any spending. Well, this is a huge mistake because the American people are in a different place than where the radical left and Joe Biden are, and it is going to backfire on the Democrats in a major way. Yeah, you know, that's it, Steve. Biden basically is saying he won't cut a dollar. Right. He won't cut a dollar out of the budget. That's his basic position, isn't it? I mean, they do not want to cut anything. And I and I think Monica's right. I mean, polls suggest that the public is perfectly happy to trim fat out of the budget. And yep. that they don't, right? Then the, the student yep. loan. I mean, that's why Biden's position. Uh, I don't fault McCarthy for negotiation because he's got the upper hand. The, the public yeah, is does. against Biden. Well, the big issue now, Larry, is what does Chucky Schumer do? Yes. You know, can he get I don't think he can get the votes to get anything through the Senate. I mean, he's I mean, McCarthy has has boxed these Democrats in. Yes. With collapsing walls. He, they're in a very tough position right now. And he's really flipped the situation. And he, he is uh, in great shape. I don't think the Democrats. Joe Manchin said he's not going to vote for a clean debt ceiling bill. So mm. uh, I think this is a, a great position um, and it's going to be negotiated. And we do have to raise the debt ceiling. 
But Biden's the one who's been talking for six months with his Treasury Secretary about it's going to be Armageddon if we don't raise the debt ceiling on time. And they're not doing anything about it. Yeah, we we had former Senator Phil Graham on who went through two of these things with Graham Rudman back in the Reagan 80s. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Phil's point, Steve, was that, uh, yeah, we have to raise the debt ceiling, but there's only one group that has a proposal to raise the right. debt ceiling, and that is McCarthy and the Republic and the House Republicans. Chuck Schumer doesn't have a plan to raise the debt ceiling, and Joe Biden doesn't have a plan to raise the debt ceiling. Doesn't have anything. You know, and so that's a very envious position for McCarthy to be in. That's why I say he's the king of the hill right now. Yeah, I agree. And and I'd only add to that that Phil Graham knows that virtually, you know, we've had at least five or six times in the last 30 years where we've had major budget agreements where the uh, leverage was the debt ceiling. Eight times. And and by the way, the guy who negotiated the last one, which was the Budget Control Act, which is something I favored, Mm -hmm. guess who negotiated that? Yeah, it was Biden. Yep. It was Joe? It was Barack Obama's vice president. Eight yep. t- eight times, Steve, in the last thirty eight years, debt yep. ceilings have come to big budget cuts. Uh, yep. That's a good factoid. All right, let's take a quick break. I want to come back. Um, the Disney Desantis knife fight. That was a big Wall Street Journal editorial. It's a tough story. Monica Crowley's with us, former assistant treasury secretary. Monica Crowley podcast. I, she actually let me on the Monica Crowley podcast. I talk about negotiations. I had to ask five or six times. And Steve Moore, Freedom Works Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline and More Money, great radio show following this show on most of the same stations. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with Monica Crowley former assistant secretary of the treasury during the Trump administration, author and political columnist and commentator. And uh, right now the purveyor of the Monica Crowley podcast and Steve Moore, whose great radio show more money follows this show on uh, many of these same stations and uh, committee to unleash prosperity and freedom works. Um, it's a good editorial. I thought in the journal, the DeSantis Disney knife fight. They're both going to lose. I think it's hurt DeSantis politically as Donald Trump's numbers have exploded in recent weeks. But I'd like both of you to weigh in on that. Steve Moore, why don't you start? Well, I did read that Wall Street Journal editorial. I thought it was spot on. And you're right, Larry. Both DeSantis and Disney are big losers here. DeSantis has to focus on his economic performance, which has been fantastic. You know, he's been a great, great governor of Florida. It's the fastest growing state, more jobs, more higher incomes, more businesses moving in. And Disney, I mean, what the hell is going on with Disney? This is supposed to be a family you know, uh, network and family park, and it's gotten into this crazy LGBTQ stuff and a radical left agenda that's totally – I mean, Walt Disney must be rolling over in his grave when he sees what's happened to his company. So I, I agree, both of them should just stop. I mean, this is a really – bad for the company and for Ron DeSantis. And I'm not picking a favorite right now in the presidential sweepstakes, but you stick with your strong suit, Larry, and that's the economy for DeSantis. I mean, he, I've said this on the air so many times. You go back to that Wall Street Journal editorial, Florida versus New York. Yeah. You live in, you live in uh, New York city. You pay 14.8% tax rate. 
Uh, if you live in Miami, you pay zero. Uh, Florida has more population than New York, but the size of their budget is half of New York's, half of New York's. And Florida's growth rate uh, is like three times New York over the past uh, seven or eight years. And, and for the life of me, I don't know why Monica DeSantis doesn't get on that message. That is a great message. And, you know, he can say, look, I would do for the rest of the country what we've done for New York. He could take on New York. He could take on California and so forth, Illinois. It's, it's perfect. But instead, he's mired in it. And, Monica, this past week, Kevin McCarthy said uh, in response to a question that what DeSantis should do is just negotiate a deal as quick as possible. And other people have said if it were Donald Trump, Trump would have made a deal uh, with Bob Iger, the CEO of, the, of, of Disney. Trump would have made a deal in a couple of hours. And so DeSantis is mired in this. And the other thing that's troubling, Monica, uh, put this on the table, it just kind of looks like you've got a Republican governor bashing a business. And, and I don't think that's a good position for DeSantis or, frankly, any Republican leader to be in. GOP should be defending business because all Joe Biden does is try to destroy business. Anyway, what's your take on this? Well, I don't think you can separate any of this from presidential politics, right? right? So, look, it does appear pretty evident that Governor DeSantis is going into the presidential sweepstakes, the Republican primary, and the 800-pound gorilla in the GOP is Donald Trump. After the indictment of Donald Trump in New York, Trump's poll number, I think he was already leading DeSantis as close as possible competitor. I'm like 15 points, maybe 20 points. Now he's leading him between 30 to 40 points. And so if you're Governor DeSantis and you're serious about that, you need to carve out your own lane that's going to distinguish you from President Trump in a Republican primary. Governor DeSantis has been an extraordinary governor for the state of Florida. As you pointed out, he's delivered a very strong economy. I'm sitting in Florida right now. The state is absolutely booming. So I agree with you both that he should get on the ball with an economic plan for the country um, as fast as possible if he is going to run. But when he is taking a look at his chief rival here for the nomination, Trump, Trump as president delivered a booming economy and world's peace. That's pretty tough to beat. So I think if you're Governor DeSantis, you're saying, how do I stake out my own claim here? And my own claim is going to be taking on wokeness in the university system in Florida or and or um, in the corporate world. And, of course, Disney, I'm, I'm all for supporting businesses of all sizes as a strong conservative, okay? But if you are Disney and you are in the kids' business, and you're also now in the business of grooming children and being okay with the sexualization of children and the trans agenda being forced down their throats through Disney cartoons and Disney theme parks. Well, if I'm the Republican governor, I'm going to take that on. I'm sorry, I just am. Now, I agree with the Wall Street Journal editorial that it, it may not redound to either of their benefits here because it, it looks maybe like a lose-lose. But if I'm Ron DeSantis and I'm serious about running for president, this is the stake in the ground that I'm going to drive because I want to distinguish myself from Trump on this particular issue and make it my signature but, issue. But also, if you're taking 
on a Goliath like Disney. Yeah, but Monica, hang on a second. I want to politically, but I want to interject. Right now, they're not arguing about woke. I mean, DeSantis won the woke. The legislature passed the bill, so I think kids under five years old are not going to be subjected to these gender and sex uh, lectures by uh, crazy left-wing people. Okay, he won that. What they're arguing about now is local governance, and they're going into court, and Disney has great lawyers, and frankly, they have, uh, I don't know, the Constitution may be behind them. This is about self-governance. And it's also about free speech. I mean, I don't think that DeSantis wants this to drag on and on and on. It's a court fight. Donald Trump may be fighting Alvin Bragg, and everybody knows about the weaponization and the politics of that. That's what's driving Trump's numbers up. But uh, DeSantis fighting Disney in court over local self-governance, you know, who's going to run the reedy local district or whatever it's called? I don't think that's where he wants to be. Can I just make one point about that? I don't think that's where he wants to be. I think it is political in the sense that DeSantis, you're correct, he won those fights. Yeah. But then it emerged that in the midnight hour, the previous board trumped DeSantis, right? They had voted like in the midnight hour before the board uh, went away and a new board came in. And DeSantis politically could not be seen to have lost that fight, to have been trumped in a way Mm. uh, by the Disney board on their way out the door. And that's why I think he needs to feel like he's got the last word. So mine's bigger than yours. That's what this is coming down to. Steve Moore, Steve Moore, I'm from Minnie Mouse. What? Do they still have Minnie Minnie Mouse? They used to have have Mickey. They have Minnie? I used to love Minnie Mouse. She was so cute. When I was yeah, a child, but, <laughs> a long time yeah, too ago. Much, too much talk about Minnie and Mickey Mouse, not enough on the economy. But look, right. I want to just say this to defend, not so much to defend DeSantis, but Larry, please, 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 you talk to the president all the time. Stop the trash talking. I mean, yeah. some of his ads against DeSantis are disgusting. They're not true. I know. Florida has had an amazing economic run. DeSantis just got elected with 60% of the vote. Uh, you know, what he's doing in Florida, you know, you can't argue against. So I wish... I wish Trump would not, you know, fabricate the record and, and shoot below the waist because he's doing that right now. All I'll say on that subject, I, I do talk to him occasionally, yes, but yeah. uh, on this subject that you mentioned, uh, I can just say I've tried. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we do. I tried too. But you've tried. Others have tried. It turns, people, tried. Turn. It turns sus- people off. I suspect Monica's. Monica, you're down there. Just go and talk to him. Tell him to stay on message. If Trump stays on message, he's got a shot at being president. But if he doesn't stay on message, he's not going to be president. He's always best when he's talking about policy. Of course he is. By the way, speaking of that horse race, you know, uh, people need to pay more attention to Kamala Harris. Because Kamala Harris, if they ever won, if they ever get reelected, she'll be the president. That's right. I mean, really, everybody knows that. We need to focus more light on Kamala Harris, kids. Uh, go ahead. Feel free to weigh in on that one. We've got about a minute left. Uh, well, look, I mean, the only way she could win the presidency, she, she can't win on her merits. She would have to ride in on Biden's coattails if, in the slim chance, he's reelected. Um, but they understand that she is historically unpopular. So if Biden falls by the wayside before 2024, 
they're going to have to deal with Kamala, yeah. and I think they may have to get rid of her, too. That's a good point. That's a great point. Anyway, Monica Crowley, thank you ever so much. Steve Moore, thank you ever so much. Listen to more radio. And I'm Kudlow. I'll be back next weekend. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.